0: Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day to day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. This is episode 24, recorded August 18th, 2021, and today we're speaking with Daryl hers who is a big, big part of a Toronto-based music event called Indie Week. Now, this used to be the usual sort of music conference and festival, but COVID has forced them to get smart. First, though, it's Grant and the tech news that has them excited. Okay, Grant, uh, you've gone through all your newsletters and websites and Dark web corners. What have you got for technology news this time around?
1: Uh, I think um, it's uh, it'll be a little more somber than usual, which I'll, I'll leave you with a, sh- but I'll leave you with a no, no. I'll leave you with a shocking one at the end, but you'll now you'll have to wait because I'm going to build up to it. But um, well, I mean, th- one of the biggest things that uh, we're facing, and I I am involved in it now, Alan, a big way um, with the problems with congestion, and um, so you know. Um, the average, for example, we talked this before, the average commute in the U.K. is 115 hours. Uh, uh, we, and then it goes on and on. Well, the top cities are the most congested. Toronto's not in the top 10, by the way. Um, and, and in fact, the, the number one is Rio de Janeiro and Bo, Bo, Bogota and uh, Mexico City. Nothing that really shocks you. Uh, but London seems to, and Paris seem to creep in there and Boston and Chicago. Now, these are the cities with the most time of, of uh, congestion and, and commuting. Now, what this has really done is created a new industry called micro-mobility. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that micro-mobility is what it means, micro. So it's not really a car. So we're talking scooters. We're talking bikes. We're talking um, shared cars. Um, and so what we're finding is... Um, It's making mass changes everywhere. It really is. And um, cities have no choice but to change um, because of two reasons, congestion and pollution. But um, just so you guys understand, the cost of congestion uh, just in the UK costs the economy 6.9 billion pounds. Okay. Where the average user uses... um, 115 hours, and that works out to the average user uh, being roughly 900 pounds each user is costing. And you can do these numbers. So what's happening now, cities are saying the end of it. Uh, And we can talk about the other stuff, premature deaths, all that kind of stuff, Um, carbon emissions. I get all that, okay? But congestion also is about solving how to get from point A to point B. Um, Scooters are the fastest-growing market. Their scooter business um, has seen over 35, 40 million rides last year. So that's about 10% of the volume. And so you've got scooter companies coming with the yin-yang. And then, of course, you've got the people they have found out want the personal choice of, when I go downtown, I can share a car. So um, as you know, even in Toronto, we now have maybe four or five stalls in every garage that are shared cars. And then maybe another two stalls or scooters in there. And we're doing a project right now in Quebec where there are about four or five stalls. I should know it better because we're managing it as well, the whole complex, which is like six buildings and all types of transportation. But in this agile instance, there are um there's companies like Kite Mobility and Switchmo and Switcher mo- switch EV. And so you can park your car and get electrified, you can pull a scooter out of the mix, you can share a car. You can grab a bike, and you know the the fact is in the world of smart city, probably the number one aspect of a smart city for transportation in a urban situation will be shared mobility. Yeah,
0: I can I can see it. Um, I I still like having my my own car, but oh if no no li- no I don't no. But it, but if you're living in a place with sufficient density and access to this kind of transportation. I can see it being a big cost saver for so many people. If I can just borrow a car or just hop on a scooter, uh, you know, how many
1: thousands of dollars is that going to save me over owning a, 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 my own? Vehicle? Absolutely. Or you're a young couple. And when you want to go somewhere, you go down, and pop on one of the shared cars. Or you're going to go to the park today, grab a scooter. Um, it's changed our life. Mm. And uh, it's not going backwards. And I'm okay with it. Uh, mm. I'm a car guy, too. I want my car. But if I was staying downtown, I may have different uh, opinions on. I it. Um, I know
0: somebody who moved downtown and got rid of their cars because they don't need it. Correct. They just don't need a car.
1: No, uh, why not take that? Whatever I don't know. Say Alan, say it's uh, a lease or a payment or investment of two or three thousand a month with expenses and cars and all that. What do you mm. do with it? Enjoy the downtown city. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Could change your lifestyle, um, and it's true. Um, so, yeah, that, that, I thought it was interesting the, the, that, uh, you know, you've got all these cities now and it's becoming a major, major um, business and these shared mobility companies are popping up and getting very big valuations in the market world because that's where everyone thinks the future is going. Right, so uh, I like it, so um, that's my soft news. You know the nice news, and we'll we'll mold into my next news. Mm-hmm. So, how would you like a robot to be your lawyer? Go to court and fight for you? ooh, that's interesting. I you' would- like that, Alan well, it's the reality um there's a There's a small guy who started a company, and it's not I really don't think it's that far fetched um but he has a, he has a robot that essentially can go and and fight your battles. Um, appeal part, like for example, the way he got it is this guy out of Silicon Valley. He's 24 year old guy. And, um, and what he did is, his name's Joshua Browder and he has an app called do not pay (laughs) 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 the first robot lawyer that I'm aware of. Um, and essentially it will go fight your parking tickets. It has all the laws. It has everything in its database. It's probably better than any lawyer because, you know, when you're a lawyer, you got to prepare a lot. He doesn't. He's got access to every case, every solution ever happened, right? Mm-hmm. In his mind. Think of it. I mean, you could get a lawyer to do anything for you and he can go look and say, okay, uh, you know, Smith against Baxter 2014. It's in his database. So I bring it up because two things are interesting. Oh, by the way, Do Not Pay has over 150,000 paying subscribers now. No kidding. And it won an award from the American Bar Association for increasing legal access. What? The American yeah. Bar Association gave them an award? An award? I wanted, I think it's pretty cool. I know I'm advertising for the guy, but he deserves it. Hmm. Um, and so I was reading up on it quite a bit, and... There are probably hundreds of law firms using his application now hmm. because it's AI. And think of it, Alan. He can't, this lawyer, this robot, how can I make a mistake? Other I than it's going to do all the correct things. It's, it, it, it sounds a bell. That's all I'm saying. It sounds yeah, it, a bell. It, it, it's, it's,
0: it's interesting. But I mean, one of the things that a human lawyer can do is be very creative and be very emotional,
1: which can be weird. Oh. Oh, but but so can a lawyer, so can a robot now. Oh, emotional you can draw robot to emotion. Oh, we're gonna to get to that soon. Uh, um, okay. But the point is um, that robot will go to the emotion that's required. Here's a good one for you. Now think of that. Based on the argument and who's in there, it will go and say, "Okay, what is the best emotional experience I should give to this?" So it can't be. You're 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 gonna see something really change. But I guess my I guess my whole thing is that think of the cost Yeah. and it's got to happen. And it's good for people that can't afford uh, the big law firms and that. And um, I'll give an example. Everywhere you go, there are millions of court cases backed up. Correct? Mm-hmm. Oh, you can't get to court for two years. Think of it was all computerized. You would begin to court right away and be out. And remember – I can probably get you as close as a 95 to 98% probability rate. So in other words, it can predict an outcome of, of a court case. I know, I know. This is like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I never changed. I know. Okay. So, um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I okay. think it's really cool. Um, okay. okay. Well, I had to stop. I want you to go to bed tonight thinking about this. Okay. okay. So here's the big question. Okay. And I know what you're going to say right away for the show, but the question is are we right now just living in a simulation?
0: Oh, here we go. I know. You <laughs> know, red pill, blue pill. Yeah.
1: Wow. I, I, come on, man. I mean, listen, um, today's computers are incredible, right? Right. 50 years ago, we had Pong. And now we're <laughs> yeah. telling people how to, lo- how to live. And there's transistors in every chip and blah, blah. So the question is, we know with the future of quantum scale, we'll be able to create virtual worlds. I think it's not a question that we know or answer we have, but we have to understand that it sounds like it could happen. And then if it sounds like it could happen, how do we know we're not in one now? (laughs) <laughs> well, <that's>, Sorry, <laughs> No, no,
0: I, I've been reading about this And every once in a while An article comes out where scientists Provide additional information That, yeah, we're probably living in a computer sim-
1: simulation Really? I, I, yeah, I don't know I mean, we're probably not But, Fine. you know, you've got the technology singularity um, If it ever happens, it's uncontrollable Like, you can't reverse it um
0: and there's nothing you can do about it.
1: No, nothing. Um so simulating this level of complexity, of course, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to do to do with what you have to to get to that, but can you imagine I I I've, I've been thinking about it a lot since I started reading about it a lot, and then I read uh, another great article on it, um because i uh, you know, it's been doubling its complexity and it's about every 20 months. Mhm improving the rate of speed and all that stuff. And holy cow. Um, what if you and I, we go to bed tonight and we're not even real. Okay, <laughs> hey Alan. So, I mean, I thought that was a good way you could go to bed and think about that. Um, I, okay. Yeah. You know, thank um, you. Well, I mean, um, and then of course we can create the superhuman and we can be God and there may be someone controlling everything we're doing. Can it happen? Well, anything can happen. Do I think it's happening? Probably not.
0: But the point is, but it's a maybe, great question. Hey, 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 maybe that you were just programmed to think that. I know. There you go. So while we leave it at that then, buddy? Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Hurst has been involved in a music conference and festival called Indie Week from the beginning. But just like trade shows in the age of COVID, Indie Week has had to pivot to some smart tech. Now, what does that mean? Let's find out. We spoke to Daryl from his home office in Toronto. Okay, Daryl, explain exactly what it is you do and why you're on a Smart Cities podcast.
2: Well, uh, that's a great question, Ellen. Uh, First, I run uh, Indie Week, which is normally an in-person music festival. Uh, It takes over about 24 venues across downtown Toronto, and we do music conferencing. We have international delegates coming in and international bands. And of course, with the times we've had to move online and a big part of our message has been trying to keep the music community together in a positive sense, but also that positivity means education and moving forward and forward is going to look a lot different. We believe everything is going to be hybrid. Uh, Venues have to adjust and change so that they can allow for that type of streaming and that they can capture content. And, and it's something that, you know, I think about days when I was a musician where I remember CDs would say things like, no machines were used to create this recording. And then I remember uh, Neil Young releasing a song, This Note's Not For You, about anti-sponsorship in the music industry. And I really feel that COVID has moved the progress of the technology space for music forward at a a much alarming pace. And a lot of musicians and businesses are actually not sure how to adjust and, and fit into this new world. And the, the thing is, we're not going back. Uh, you know, I used to work at HMV early days as well. And I remember the day that I received, I think it was Metallica, uh, and we're receiving it. And I'm like, where's the cassettes? And they're like, they didn't make them. And I was like, but I use cassettes. And I just realized, you know, the industry doesn't care about my opinion. And and things are going to move forward. And I think the more we kind of kick and dig our heels in resisting change is what makes the music industry difficult. Uh, we're vulnerable. To- yes, absolutely. That's a great word. And that's why we're left behind a lot of times. And if anything, it's opened the doors of discussion with government bodies that didn't exist before with arts and the government, where are the cracks in the business? Where are the places to be fixed? And, uh, it's a very interesting space that we're in. And if anything, now's the time to try to be a leader in that change and try to help everybody else get, get there because, uh, it is changing, and nobody's going to ask us for our opinion. That's the reality of it.
0: Earlier on, we had an episode where we had somebody who uh, was in the business of trade shows, and one of the was biggest
1: th- companies in it.
0: One of the biggest companies, yeah. And we were talking about the challenges of having a business like that in the age of COVID, where nobody at this at the time we did this, that podcast could come together because you know. But, were, but here's
1: something we said. We thought you and I thought, Alan. And um, it's funny, Daryl kind of brings it up about going forward. We said, it's never coming back. We said, well, we think that this is going to be a new age. The digital age, whatever we want to call it. In my space, I've been in the digital age my whole life. But um, we said that it wouldn't come back. Now, Daryl, ironically, it came back. Now, there are, listen, we're doing a show right now. Okay. So, yes, the digital age has now made a progression. I think my question to you would be, because what Alan just said is, is the digital age now going to change everything? Um, You said we're probably not going back to the way it was. Is it a hybrid? Are we dealing with a hybrid situation here?
2: I, I think we're dealing with a situation where, and this is something that is completely new, is the fact that it can be what you define it to be. meaning that artist who is acoustic at home can find their space, whatever it is that company can define their space. Like literally we can connect. And, you know, one of the biggest thing challenges last year was moving Indie week as a conference online. And we went from hard stop. We were actually one of the first to cancel, like start a lockdown one. I was like, cancel it. We're not doing it this year because we thought all the spring conferences are going to move their dates to be on top of each other in the fall. And I also didn't want to change a date to change a date to then cancel it. Cause that's a lot of work and stress for, you know, that was, our, everyone
1: did it anyhow. Right. They kept, they finally changed and canceled.
2: <laughs> exactly. it <was> dead on. <laughs> right. So, and, and a lot of like all of us conferences and festivals, we were actually having meetings weekly and biweekly. What are you doing? Here's what I'm doing. And everybody had plan A, live. Plan B, hybrid. Plan C, move the dates. Plan D, all online. And plan E, cancel. And I I just sort of was like, I'm just going with one plan. I, I don't like doing all that extra work and stress. So, however, in July last year, we said we can do this online. And so we actually had to announce with no speakers, no schedule, no sponsors, and no funding. But we're doing it. We announced, put up tickets and dates, and they sold. Wow. And to market it, we created a weekly live session, a discussion every Tuesday, talking about the music industry, challenges and such, and people started tuning in from around the world. And so we started seeing results that were very interesting. It was not planned. And in the music business, Alan, you probably know this. (laughs) What's the timeline? We need three months out. We need to create content. We, we just like literally put dates up, tickets on sale. They sold. Let's do it weekly. People started signing up from the, around the world, and that was our marketing. And we found that by being organic and meaningful and connecting with people, that was the most important part during this. And so moving forward, I think anybody can find their audience online. And in person when we can. And if anything, that strengthens the in-person and strengthens online. So it's both places, but it really is open to being defined. And if the challenge in place right now is for the people who don't know how to define it. What is my place online? People haven't been using data before. People haven't been using Facebook pixels to understand who's consuming their content and from where. Uh, But now's the time to kind of move towards that. And, um, you know, you could be a ukulele player that sings Al Yankovic songs backwards, whatever, and guaranteed you can find an audience somewhere in the world and you don't have to travel there. So that's the biggest thing.
0: What's interesting about the music industry is that it's a canary in the coal mine. So when something is going wrong, it usually shows up first in the music industry, whether it be, Selling records, uh, downloads, uh, online engagement, touring—all that stuff. If it's going to go wrong, it'll probably start in the music <laughs> industry. At the same time, though, the music industry is one of the most versatile and flexible industries out there because we're dealing with creative people. We're dealing with very smart people who are often rather tech-savvy to begin with because you can't be a musician these days without understanding technology. And and third. Um, people who tend to gravitate to things like these concerts or these conferences uh, are very open to getting this information and congregating in
1: new and different ways. Right. Let me ask something. would, would this get you guys your world in music. And um, would this mean also, because you said it, the guy that plays the ukulele or Al Yankovic tunes or whatever, um, that's an audience he may never have gotten because he couldn't afford to make that trip. And now the musicians are maybe getting a jump on things they were losing before. Not everyone can afford to do everything, right? But with the introduction of technology, um, even artificial intelligence, that's telling what people want to hear, uh, which is my background. So I just want to say that I think that has a big effect on music now. Um, would it say that the future is going to open up to a lot of people who were musicians we've never heard of a lot of people who are great musicians, but now can get stuff out quicker ahead of the, the hackers and all the other people and so on. I don't know. I and mean, I'm running by you guys, like nothing beats a live concert, of course, guys, but beyond that, you know, what's your opinion,
2: Daryl? You, you said a lot of great stuff and, and, you know, the thing is there's, I'd say big divides in it. Uh, there's a big portion of the music industry that just don't want things to change and they resist it. And a lot of that is artists. And, and by like we do surveys after our conferences and, and such the age range of say an artist that's 35 and up is kind of more to resist and want to go back to what they know and not wanting to learn and, and go through a lot of stuff, not saying that they aren't out there, but that just seems to be some of the information that we're seeing. Um, the other part is, and I look at like, say my girlfriend's kids, they've never been to a live concert, but they have been to a concert on Roblox. And we often, <sighs> we often sort of associate what was our first Music experience. What's our like? I just posted my first concert without my parents was Genesis Mama tour, right? Oh, I, I love posted them. Posted I went to their that. tour. Yeah. yeah, but that's what I remember. And so, to them, they were having like a dance party in the living room, and it was a half hour, and it was fun. They had nachos and all food and all this. So that's their first live music experience. They don't even know. Well, that's that's interesting. So, so there's going to be this divide of like people who are learning right now because their faces are planted in the devices and they're a young audience. And that's what I believe the music industry is now sort of gearing up to cater to. They're selling digital merch. So they have an avatar in Roblox and you can buy merch for your avatar.
1: Sure, yeah, I understand, yeah, right. well, let me ask let me say something there. let me see something there. so let me tell you, and Alan, I want to run this by you as well. so Alan knows I'm a music nut, and I had lots of bands I managed when I was young and uh and so on, but um, I never watched one concert online ever, and i'm a I am an online geek, okay? I have programs coming here, but I must have watched every Pink Floyd concert every Jess so O'Tall concert, every, like, I i bet you a thousand concerts since, I, since I'm since i home. Mm-hmm. So these are concerts, guys, I would have never watched. So how do they get, how do these, both of you guys, so we've got this whole new world of online, To you know, you go to YouTube, right? And I watch all these great band concerts, and I love them, and I watch them over and over. And then when something new comes, I watch it. Never would have considered that three years ago. So how does that business evolve? And how do they actually go out and market that and make money on that?
2: <laughs> how much time do you <laughs> have? Is that, we could talk Okay, about sorry, hours on this, Sorry, I, I said not Okay. okay. <laughs> no, but but you say a good point. Like uh, There was an article that came out, I believe it was a week ago. Alan, you might have saw it, about Queen's music evaluate the value is over $1.3 Yes. And a lot of that had to do with new people discovering the music, but people who know their music continually going back to it. And YouTube is, if not the biggest, one of the biggest music search engines online. And a lot of it is there's rare concerts, there's rare footage that you would never see anywhere else but YouTube and and I know I'm guilty. I've listened to the whole Pink Floyd catalog since me too. Me too. <laughs> I've listened to the whole Black Sabbath catalog. I've, yeah, I've, me I've too. been going through the stuff that I've always been, I should listen to and I never had time, but now I, I kind of do. So, so this is the thing they're making a lot of money because of that. And like the royalties are still getting figured out in the live streaming and performance space. But, uh, I know in talks with some booking agents and with some people in the collection of online royalties, um, and, and, and part of the reason Indie Week didn't really go into artist performances online, because there's a lot of gray area right now, there's up to, I think, seven or eight streams to worry about when you're asking an artist to perform online now. How is it broadcast? Where is it broadcast? Is it an international audience? Is it being recorded, potentially distributed and, and so on, right? And, and you need to, and, and for us to actually have an artist perform, we need to know the set list and get written permission from every songwriter. So if they do a cover, I have to go find the writers of the cover and get an actual written agreement that we're allowed to have this now that's the legal wait wait wait, wait
0: wait wait. so so those performances aren't covered by standard performing rights organizations
2: yes but you're dealing with like if it's recording now it's a recording type royalty if it's being posted somewhere after, that's a distribution type royalty holy crap yeah, but
1: Alan and Daryl, wouldn't that wouldn't that where algorithms come in place today? Wouldn't that where I don't want to – Maybe it won't. Maybe that's where AI and and physics comes into place of so developing things in the future that see that, recognize well,
2: that, and know where to distribute it. I'm just a guess. I mean, <laughs> if, if I can just put in a a quick plug, then because okay, Music Pro Summit September eighth to the eleventh talks about these kinds of things yeah. we've got a, a session with lawyers that are talking about those types of royalties and what does it mean uh, there's also ai companies verify media where sure. they, what they're trying to do or what they do do is get the data from music now here's the biggest failure a little bit in music is when royalty collection started it was pre-internet and so there's bits of data missing. Like Spotify didn't exist, YouTube didn't exist. So, how do you get those records updated to capture royalties that should be collected? So, and you're dealing with, and, and the, you know, my other position is I do market development for a CD baby, which is an online distributor. And so, the biggest part of trying to collect royalties is it goes through company A, B, C in territory A, B, C, and you're trying to collect and get the data from it, that's really difficult uh, because everybody's created their own unique custom platform at some time and you're trying to connect these. So a company like say Verify Media is trying to be the central location for all the data. And if you update the central location and if everybody's plugged into it, then it's updated everywhere.
0: Well, there, there are a couple of companies like that. I know that there's one called Jaxta, which is trying to do exactly the same thing. You would think that there would be a worldwide database of every song ever released with all the metadata required to identify a song right down to the note, but it doesn't exist. You have something called ISRC numbers, right. but that that doesn't work very well because there's still a lot of data missing from that.
1: So how, is IS, how does that work? Well it's
0: an ISRC number is like like a ISBN number for a book. It's a unique identifier for a book whether it's a you know I re- I release a book it gets a number I release it in soft cover it gets a number and it gets released in the United States So in theory you could have
1: numbers even for different types. You well yeah, I mean yes,
0: that's that's the plan but the problem is as as Daryl was saying Is that once you start looking at an individual song and how many times it's been released and how many different forms and how many different territories, each one of those recordings has to have a unique identifier. And you have one single, let's say, just one song. It has to be, it it could have
1: 50 unique identifiers depending on where it came out. And I'm going to tell, I'm going to say that when Daryl has his conferences, he'll, see people with AI that will go out and find that stuff now and combulate all that. Now, Um, with all that said,
0: this cannot be done manually. It just can't. I didn't
1: say it could. That's right. That's That's right. right. AI. So, but my next point is this though. Come on. The biggest problem in the world is hacking and cybersecurity. So we know it's big in music. We know it's big. People hacking media songs, reselling them. Copying them is that a big part of what you talk about at these conferences? Of how do you pre- protect your your libel from being copied and hacked and and just who's, uh, who's uh, real and who's not?
0: Intellectual property protection.
2: Yeah, yeah, we 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 don't really talk too much about that as we're more the creative process to the distribution ah. and getting it out and the marketing. Uh, but you know, if anything, in a lot of places in the world the internet has almost abolished the hacking. Like, for instance, if I traveled before to a cu- country like Brazil, you would have all these people with the burn CDs everywhere and DVDs. Correct, correct. But now Maybe it's more. like, well, I can find it on YouTube. And, and so there's not that much of a business for that anymore. Uh, so if anything, that's where it's helped in that area.
1: Well, yeah, you're thre- Wait a minute. That's true because you think you're getting it free when you go on youtube but the the content is charging for advertising or other things so in a way it's helping everybody
2: yeah like this is the one thing if anything the music industry should be on board because if they hit play and there's an ad and and in a lot of cases the magic number is 31 the user has to engage for at least 30 seconds for it to be considered a play or a stream, gotcha. So at thirty-one, the payment is there. That's cool. Twenty-second, twenty-nine. If they hit stop, it's not considered a stream. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's also influencing how people write and create content. So TikTokers and such are making okay, yeah. music to engage people to keep them hanging on to until stay there.
1: Absolutely, second, I read that. Second yeah. thirty-one. But isn't that what you're doing though? Are you marketing?
2: That's what the music business is all about marketing. It's all about marketing and, and, you know, um, kind of circling back to prior in our conversation, you know, one of the things that we deal with in the music industry is creatives, artists who let's face it, often don't want to be sold or marketed a certain way and are very protective and sometimes very skeptical and, and, slow to adapt because like, oh, I don't want to put it out there because somebody could take it. And I'm like, but a million people could discover it. No. Well, it's what no economics do you know. want, right?
1: Do you want to yeah. make money? Are you that down-to-earth guy who, you know, the Bob Dylan or something? But but Ellen, you interview a lot of guys. You've mm-hmm. had bands on and new mm-hmm. albums. And what is their attitude about technology? Oh uh, well they <laughs> they're just trying to keep their heads above water
0: because really? so much money was made playing live and touring and when you play oh. live when you play live and you tour you sell merch and you know that's money that comes in every single day so you can't charge as much as you used to you know you can't get $100 for a, an online show so no, they're, no, no. they're just you can trying- get merchandising you can get merchandising well, yeah you do but you don't get it in the same volumes i mean when when justin Bieber plays live he'll sell $350,000 worth of t-shirt <sighs> per show jesus uh, so if that's that's been eliminated. Wow. What we're seeing in a lot of legacy artists is that they're selling their catalogs to these big investment companies uh to get all this money up front, like $50 million, $75 million, $100 million. In the case of Bob Dylan, $350 million, getting right. all this money. That's why I brought him up, Bob Dylan. Right. So they're they're getting all this money up front. And these companies are, then have to unlock the value in these songs going forward. So uh we've seen a lot of We'll call them older heritage, legacy artists, whatever. Drop out of the touring thing, taking the money and running. And you can understand why. If I'm seventy or seventy-five years old, I don't want to go on tour for night after night after night, especially during COVID. Give me a hundred million dollars; that takes care of me for the rest of my life and for the next three generations.
1: Yeah. And then for those guys, then it's all about marketing. You're going to go out and digitize it and get out to everybody. Well, that these
0: companies like Primary Wave and and uh, one thinks that is Hypnosis and a whole bunch of others. Uh, so yeah, what we're starting to see, and I want you to watch for this on television, is uh, you're starting to hear music from these artists who have sold their catalogs to these companies as they are now exploiting it, licensing it for commercials and for uh, TV shows and films and trailers. No, no, and, no Sorry, back what
1: up. Right. What do you mean by um, exploiting it for commercials? What do you mean by well, that? Well,
0: if you spend $100 million on a catalog… You have to make yeah. that money back because Hypnosis, for example, yeah. is a company and it's that's music catalog. Is music catalog? But, and but what they're,
1: they're pretending is they have the rights to their, na- their name and everything. Well,
0: it depends on the deal.
1: No, what I know the, that, but is that where the exploitation comes?
0: It, it, it could. Uh, exploitation could just could mean placing the song in, a, in, in somewhere where it earns money. So putting okay. it in, in okay. a TV show, commercial, or all that that sort of stuff. So a lot of these companies, like Hypnosis, for example, they trade on the London Stock Exchange. They have. You know, several billion dollars out there invested in these songs. They have to make that money back. So they're trying to figure out how to make the songs work for them so they get a return on their investment. Gotcha. It's yeah. it's it's I'm a fascinating, fascinating. You know what I
1: see, guys? I see these like we do all these big new smart buildings. I see the second floor of that smart building having a a stadium. I don't mean a big stadium, but because they do everything else now, right? They got the gym, they got it's all social media within, because of lockdown. We even have offices that you can share in these new condominiums. I see that theater where they can show concerts.
2: Absolutely. an idea. Well, well, this is the thing that Live Nation is working on. Basically, okay. like they just announced the Budweiser stage is going to get a whole new uh, look. And, and they're increasing the at, at capacity. Uh, but they're going to make it year round, not just summer, but also streaming, right? Dreamhead. And so, so if there's again, we could talk forever on this. I'm a tech guy too. I've I've been involved with web stuff since the start. But uh, a couple of things to note: um, yes, artists are selling their catalogs, and now companies can put them in film and stuff. We had John Densmore of the Doors as one of our guest speakers one year, and he's got a book where. He, it's It talks about how he took the rest of his band, The Doors, to court because they wanted to place a song in a TV commercial for over $2 million. He Sounds the, good to me, right? Yeah, but they had a handshake deal that every member had to agree. Otherwise, it's a no-go. And John was like, y- you know... Uh, we would never have agreed to this before. So he held out and ended up taking them to court, you know, and, and it's a kind of thing, you know, um, protecting their art, you know, they don't want their art next to a Ford car or uh, again, if you don't need the cars, money,
1: don't care. You can do that shit.
0: Yeah.
2: No, but you it, can also, it,
0: you can also set parameters about what your music can be used for in the deal.
2: Yes. And and so what Alan was saying though, about artists, it's almost like they're kind of feel, I think being cornered right now and just like their mindset is a little bit different. It's about surviving and how do they make money right now? And they're not used to it. Like they can't make money the way they're used to normally, which is touring, selling merch. But if, if you think of it though, could they possibly build say an online fan club? Can they find a hundred people that spend $20 a year as a, membership fee and and can you build an audience that's going to engage i read an article uh yesterday and it was about you know it's thinking about the lifespan of a fan so think of one person and not how much money can they give you now but how much money can they give you in five to ten years or more that's right and and so like when i was managing annuity yeah, so when I was managing bands, I had this merch strategy where a lot of bands would go, we're going to be real impressive. We've got like five different t-shirts and you could get a black shirt or a white shirt. And I was like, no, that's your cash flow all piled into those boxes. We would start with the worst type of design, meaning not so exciting, but just the logo. And if a fan was interested, they'd go, oh, do you have shirts? Yeah, this one. Do you have anything else? No, this one. And they would buy it because they want to support the artist. And when we saw the sales actually declining, that meant we, it's time for a second shirt. And we would take the first shirt off the table and now put a new design. And if somebody came up and said, oh, do you have any shirts? Yeah, this one. If they had already bought a shirt, they bought this better shirt. So we took their money twice.
1: Oh, it sounds
2: like sports right. jerseys. Yeah, well, yeah. that's what it yes. is.
1: Great,
2: <laughs> right. and it becomes Amazing, a, really. And it becomes a limited thing. And so then, if people are buying shirts, then it's like, how long are you going to have this one for? And it's like, I don't know. And and you got to take them off table. And and so then at Christmas time, if there's any stock left, we would have this Christmas show, and it it was a chance to get a pa- Christmas package. So we sold a, an upsell ticket price that included an extra shirt that Meet. wasn't selling before.
0: Okay. All right.
2: right? So, so there's ways to think of how do you build a fan and really you got to be engaging. Uh, and I think people need to think that they are content creators now, which means doing the TikTok stuff and social media stuff a little bit more, uh, which means they're marketers now as well as creators. Um, but the thing is they have access to all the fans in the world that they can get if they can connect with them
0: where technology
1: plays a big part.
0: Yeah. We're pretty much at a time. There are so many other questions that I have to ask. We'll have to get you on it sometime down, down the road. When things shake out a little, I'm not going to say a little more, I'm just going to say a little differently because things are moving very, very quickly. What applies today may not be something that we're doing in six months. And we haven't even touched on VR or AR or you know f- shows happening in oh, Fortnite yeah, or reality. This. There's <laughs> so much that we can talk about, but and it's 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 moving so quickly that if we speculate now, uh, we could very well be very very wrong.
2: Yeah, uh, oh, we could get you're into for, robots. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's everything is moving so fast, and that's part of it. Is that you have to be Very agile. And and I think this is where the smaller companies may have a better outlook than the bigger ones. Because the smaller ones, they can change quickly. Yeah, make a
1: turn quick. Yep, make that turn.
2: And so this is a time for the independents, I believe. This is a time for the DIY artists and businesses uh, where they can now actually achieve what they were dreaming before. Where before there were so many barriers in front of them that I think this is something amazing. Like I've been able to connect with so many people online. Uh, We had a conference screen by screen, which is music and tech. And that's February. And we were able to get the head of global music for Roblox to speak. I don't have to ask about his flight schedule. Oh, was more
0: accessible. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, So we can actually
2: get the information also faster than ever before.
0: The only problem is that we don't have a chance to linger in the lobby and linger in the bar. <laughs>
2: that and that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That we're, is we're, the one thing, Alan. I, I totally agree. The lobby bar conference is the yeah. best place.
1: I remember dancing to, um, dancing the night away to a Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show guys oh, when oh. I was 17. <laughs> so don't even tell me what All it's right. about. That was my first concert when I was a live concert when i was 17 or 16 so there uh, yeah. you go
2: i'm no. aging but no. that was a fun time if, if but- i could share one hotel lobby experience i think it was at the western harbor front for cmw where uh white cowbell oklahoma came into the lobby they had a mannequin on a noose lit up a chainsaw some torches lit it on fire chainsawed it and walked out the door and oh I my think God. That was the last time CMW was allowed at Western Harvard, but yeah, <laughs> I don't
1: know why. I don't know well, why. I'll, I'll tell you what happened, too.
0: Uh, that was the last time CMW was at the Harbor Castle. Uh, and when, we, when, when they went to book again for the following year, they said, no, we gave it up to a bunch of pig farmers.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Uh, yes. So the, the musicians went out.
0: Farmer. The swine farmers came in. It tells you <laughs> yeah. something right there. Well, thank you, Daryl. I really appreciate it. Again, we will have to get you on sometime in the future when things sort of shake out a little bit more. And uh, meanwhile, keep us posted about what you're doing. And uh, Indie Week, give us uh, one more plug.
2: Yeah, Yeah. well, we're doing online conferences. We've got four, the two upcoming uh, Music Pro Summit. It's our first edition, uh, September 8th to the 11th, and of course, all online. And Indie Week is our flagship event, and that's November 9th uh, through the 13th all online uh, and it's going to be very international. We have seven different music markets participating and uh, artists and businesses will be able to connect with them virtually. Cool. Not at a lobby bar, unfortunately.
1: What a difference. Jeez. We never predicted this three months, three years ago, guys. Not a chance.
2: Not a chance. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Daryl. All right. Thanks everybody. I really appreciate this.
1: That's it
0: for this edition of the Smart City Podcast. Thanks again to Daryl Hers from Indie Week for explaining how their event has gone smart. We're already working hard on the next program so we can keep bringing you the latest from the world of smart technology. Comments are welcome through thesmartcity.blog, not that extension. And check out our website, thesmartcity.blog. You can find past programs as well as learn about who else and what else is coming up. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furlane. Technical production by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant, Andrew Crawford. I'm
2: Ellen Cross, and we'll see you next time.